This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. In this episode, we've got 34-year-old Andy Newell. He's a longtime staple of the U.S. ski team and another proud Vermonter that we're featuring. A few weeks ago, we released our interview with climate justice activist Bill McKibben. After the interview, we received a few comments that spoke to the perceived large carbon footprint of World Cup skiing and possible changes that might be implemented to curb that environmental impact. With that in mind, we called up Newell, who himself is a climate activist, to address some of the questions. We spoke to Newell on January 24th as he was prepping for that weekend's World Cups. Okay, so, um, well, first off, where are you right now? I know you're in Europe. Yeah, I am in Seyfeld, Austria, just getting ready to race here this weekend. But also, we're going to do a little training camp here before we head to Pyeongchang. So we're here for about two weeks. Okay. And is that, I don't know, what's the altitude there? Is this sort of a mini altitude camp or just... Um. Yeah, it's not quite high enough to get an altitude boost. Um, so we're talking, we're like at four, four and a half thousand feet, maybe. So we're kind of here more out of convenience because it's a sweet place to hang out and there's lots of great skiing and good living. So for us, the U.S. team, we're not really doing like an altitude prep before the games. Um, we're just kind of going for good training, good racing, good food, and then we'll head over to, to Korea. Um, well, how are you feeling at this point in the season? I know you... Uh, placed 20th overall in the last sprint uh, this past weekend. Sensations or, you know, expectations for yourself? And, and where do you think, you know, you've been in it a long time? How do you feel just generally? Uh, in general, I feel feel good, for sure. I feel like I've, like, my body's been feeling pretty good this season. Um, and I think mentally, it's kind of always a challenge when you're at my age. I'm literally, like, maybe the oldest guy in some of these sprint races. Um, so to keep kind of continually you know, plugging away take, takes a little bit of effort. Um, but in general, the season's had its ups and downs, as, as they all do. But um, the Olympics are kind of its own beast. And, and I've done a lot of classic training this year in preparation towards this classic sprint. Um, it's a race I've looked forward to for many, many years, you know, probably ever since having an, Olymp- an Olympic classic sprint in Vancouver. I feel like I've spent eight years looking forward to having another one, you know. So, I know the Olympics are its kind of a unique thing and anything can happen at the Olympics. So for me, 20th place last weekend was not exactly where I wanted to be going in to a pre-Olympic kind of World Cup with the last, that would be in the last classic sprint before the games. But I know I can be among the best classic sprinters in the world um, still. And um, so you can always, you always just kind of have to hang on to that, that confidence and do the best you can to fine tune between now and when the Olympics will happen. And then, you know, give it your best shot. That's all I can do, really. One last question about Pyeongchang. Does the, what's that core? Are you looking forward to that course or is it, uh, you know, just kind of thoughts for listeners about how that venue skis? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that particular course and race. Um, it's been on the back of my mind for several years. Um, the courses there are on a golf course, which makes it sound flat, but it is definitely not. Flat. It's, very, it's a very hilly golf course especially right around the stadium where the sprints take place. So the sprint has two pretty solid hills in it, but it's a good sprint. I don't think it's like too challenging in that it's going to be like, you know, boring to watch or like a, just kind of like a, a trail of skiers coming in. I think it's just tough enough that it's going to 
keep things quite tight and like the best the, you know the best sprinter is going to win on that day and it has a little bit of everything it's got you know double points gradual striding it has steep striding it has technical downhills so i'm excited to go race there and uh, a lot of the races are going to be at night so we're going to be racing under the lights um which will be unique too and fun and so yeah i can't wait to get there all right so i did a interview with bill mckibben and in December. And I think we posted the podcast in early January. And he obviously is a climate justice activist. And so there was some, a comment from a reader that was asking a little bit about how do athletes navigate kind of the duality of a sport that may be um, traditional fuel intensive, you know, combustion mm-hmm. intensive in terms of grooming and flights and so have, you know, what have you. And, mm-hmm a lifestyle that sort of at least likes to portray itself as being close to nature. We wanted to reach out to you because you have, from our understanding, have been involved with climate change activism for a while um, and have some interesting thoughts on how to navigate uh, some of the issues that arise with fossil fuel use and say a world cup lifestyle. So, um, and there's a lot there and there's a lot of heavy stuff and, uh, but first off, you know, what has been your involvement with the ski community and with climate change activism? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You can start there. Well, I mean, I think first of all, we need a we need a little bit of a disclaimer, and that is that I am definitely no Bill McKibben, and I'm, I'm not an expert <laughs> by the mean by any means. Um, I almost can't be considered an expert in anything other than being a ski bum, maybe. So we should just we can just get that out of the way. Uh, there you go. There you go. Okay. Um, but I mean, I think that's what makes for good podcasting, right? Is people that talk about their opinions and who are typically underqualified, I feel like. So it makes for oh, it exactly. makes there you go. interesting listening for sure. I, I consider myself like medium confidence level, low in general knowledge. So we'll just go from there. Oh my God. Don't be so harsh. <laughs> I mean, you guys, I'm just you guys need to, yeah, I know. I'm sure. I'm sure you guys can be like very overly self-confident in certain venues. So, but you guys tend to beat yourself up sometimes. So, um, um, all right. So like, yeah, go ahead. So how have you been involved? Yeah. So I got started, I'm not sure how many years ago, it was a while ago, but initially I got started through volunteering through 350 because of Bill McKibben. Um, as we all know, he's a cross country ski fan and, uh, a fan of Vermont. And so we kind of got connected and I began volunteering for a few different 350 events or you know activism posts online things like that and then kind of through that i got involved with pow in 2014 leading up to the so and what is pow uh, pow is protect our winners and i got involved with protect our winners leading up to the sochi games and was part of their big project where we drafted a letter um to world leaders that athletes could sign in on so that was 2014 when we did that because that was obviously leading up to the the paris talks and so we were kind of urging athletes to to be proactive in in taking a stance that they should encourage their country and their world leaders to to kind of go in uh, all in on the Paris Accord and come up with some some solid standards and and just embrace that whole meeting. So that was kind of the initial big project I did with Protect Our Winners. Um, and since then, have done a few smaller trips. Um, I've gone down to D.C. with them a couple times. Um, met senators down there. Um, I went down to D.C. and met with Todd Stern on behalf of Protect Our Winners. And Todd Stern was, let's see, he was like the head of the climate envoy under President Obama. And so that was a kind of a cool meeting to to meet with him and 
and talk politics a little bit. And as far as that, I mean, what I do on a on a more persistent basis to protect our winners is I do a lot of school visits, whether it's visiting high school or elementary schools, and I talk to kids about climate change and kind of what we can do to help. So that would mostly sum up what I do as far as a environmentalist. Okay. So, you know, one of the things that comes up is, you know, if people that follow the World Cup, they notice right away is that there might be automobile companies like Audi or oil companies like Alta Gas sponsoring the Canadian team, or um, I think it's called Luke Oil. Is that right? That is the primary sponsor for, sponsor for the Russians? Yeah, that's right. Um, so there seems to be a lot of, you know, it, and I believe there's also like a Norwegian sponsor that might be a, a explore, oil exploration company. But, you know, at first glance, there seems to be uh, a real contrast between the message one might want to send about, you know, sustainability and protecting winners and maybe where some of the money comes to support the sport. So, you know, you're there on the ground. Um, what are those conversations like and what are your perceptions of that kind of duality? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really, it's a tough question. And I think, or at least if we're going to simplify the question and say, you know, should a winter sports athlete or team partner with a, with an oil company, is that it? Like, is that a yes or no answer? Is it right or wrong? I think it's maybe a little too complicated to give it a, a right or wrong kind of answer. Um, and I can't necessarily speak to like what Canada's relationship is with their sponsors or like Russia's with theirs. I don't know how involved they are with their title sponsors. And I personally don't have a sponsor that is an oil company, but at the end of the day, like, I'm not so sure it's as easy as saying, like, yeah, they should or should not partner with an oil company. Um, and if I was, as an athlete, faced with the choice, is it like, oh, should I, if I had the opportunity to partner with an oil company, would I say yes or no? I think that would be a really challenging question, because I think you can look at it from a number of different different ways. And so I guess my argument of why it's okay for ski companies or ski teams to partner with oil companies would be this but i guess we can look at an oil company like if you compare an oil company to china for example it's like china in a lot of opinions you know does the most damage to the environment worldwide but china also invests the most into renewables and drives kind of the electric car industry at the same time so an oil company for sure potentially does the most damage to the environment but their potential to do the most good is huge and their potential if they are pointed in the right direction they have the potential to drive the most progressive change and kind of make the biggest differences if they're pointed in the right direction so um i think it's naive maybe to think that oil like to ignore the power i guess that an oil or an energy energy company has so if you have that opportunity i think potentially i mean high profile athletes they can inspire a lot of change within a company and they can kind of help funnel some of their philanthropy dollars. You know, like oil companies, they have a ton of money, and they often need to give away a lot of that money each year for tax incentives. And so they they often do partner with um, environmental agencies. Like that's not uncommon for an oil company to do that, even though they're doing tremendous damage. Um, They also can give a lot of money away into the right avenues. And so if you were to partner with an oil company, you could potentially – kind of funnel a little bit more dollars into the 
avenues that you would see as being much much more beneficial to the environment. You could, you know, maybe evoke a little bit of change within the company, um, inspire its its board members to to drive towards more renewable energy sources. You could make sure their philanthropy dollars are going to places where they they could be needed most. So I think it would be kind of also pretty naive to think that you could have that kind of impact on your own as opposed to partnering with an oil company, if that makes sense. What are some of the things that you guys might think about that would be practical applications of like reducing fuel use, say on the World Cup? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think the most obvious ones are the the race preparations themselves and I'm not necessarily talking about grooming we can we can talk about grooming in a sec but I'm I'm more talking about the infrastructure that goes into the races themselves I mean Sochi I've been pretty outspoken about Sochi and how poorly those games were put together um, and kind of the carbon footprint of those games was was incredible and now you look four years later looking towards Pyeongchang I think things are actually looking really quite positive as far as what they are doing as an organization to to have a pretty sustainable games. I know they're, they're trying to offset a lot of their emissions, but also kind of gather a lot of the energy that's going to be used during the games through wind power. I know is one way they're, they're working on that. And they've, as far as I know, they're the first Olympic games that's been like ISO certified. So it means like they've, they've hit a certain standard. I know all the new venues, the new buildings that they put in. So they had to put in six new buildings for the Pyeongchang Olympics, and all six of those have been built to uh, the highest kind of efficiency standard, um, which is encouraging. Um, they like converted a landfill, I think, for one of the coastal uh, villages. They they built the the coastal housing on like a landfill or something. So there's been a few things there. They they are miles ahead of where Sochi was for for the games in Russia. So I think they're a good example so far of the direction that we want to go, and I think they want to. We won't be able to tell until the games are over, but I believe they want to be the first ever Olympics that have kind of a carbon neutral impact. So that will be exciting if they can pull that off and interesting to see if they do pull that off. But you see that on a smaller scale here on the World Cup for sure and with FIS. So I think we can all agree that trucking snow (laughs) to an urban center is not the the best way to host a ski race. It's tough because I, I think those sprints are so fun and they're so exciting for for spectators, they've always been some of my favorite races, you know, racing in Drammen in Stockholm or, or a place like Dresden. But, I mean, if we're going to look at it objectively and honestly, I mean, that's not, that is not a great way to um, to host ski events. But as far as, like, how they could potentially improve races here with FIS would be, you know, thinking over the schedule a little bit more, um, hosting races that are yeah, closer together. Yeah. They they try to do that a little bit, but I don't think fists kind of rules with a an iron fist as much as they should when it comes to where the races are being hosted. So um, what I mean is like they could do first period um, a little bit more condensed where it would be like, you know, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and then go to Central Europe um, and have venues that are within driving distance to one another or very short flights and not kind of hop the globe as much as they do. Things are kind of close sometimes, but but often not. So that would be one way we could for sure improve, and I'd like to see that in the future. And then as far as like the snowmaking production and all that, I mean, I think FIS could improve that a little bit as far as making responsible decisions on venues. I'm a sea level guy, you know, born and raised in Vermont. So I think the last thing I want to do is go race at a, at a higher altitude. But 
that might be something we need to adopt in the future. You know, right now, FIST regulations are set at like maxing out the altitude you can have a World Cup race at maxes out about six and a half thousand feet, which is a reason why we can't we don't host too many races domestically in the U.S. You know, it's one of the reasons a lot of the venues are above that um, limit. So, I mean, there are a number of places in Europe where you could race above that limit um, and be guaranteed a little bit better natural snow production. Uh, plenty of places in North America where you could race at that altitude. Um, so that might be a direction we see this move in the future would be, you know, in a direction to get away from that much mass snow production. You know, these comments uh, came from uh, a professor of environmental studies, I believe, in at the University of Washington. And one of the things that he brought up was the grooming piece and and maybe to to decrease impact or fuel consumption or the footprint of a race venue there could be kind of cursory grooming for classic tracks maybe not the bomber tracks maybe folks are used to when a you know a big time piston bully rolls through um thoughts on any of that um well i mean first let's let's relish in the idea that that would be pretty cool, huh? To, to race an old school race, you know, with like no grooming. I think it would be pretty fun. At least it'd be unique. That's for sure. It would be fun. You know, like maybe a single track set with like a snowmobile or something. Right. Right. But when it comes to the question of grooming trails and the carbon impact that that has, I think it, it comes down to maybe a question that you need to ask yourself and it's going to be different depending on the person. It's going to be different on the context as far as like the situation it's used in. But um, I guess the grooming question is kind of a balance of like, kind of like abstinence. Like, do you not use something at all or do you use something responsibly in responsible consumption? Um, that's kind of the give or take with a lot of these environmental questions. And that's a question as an environmentalist, I think you'll continue to ask yourself over and over again is, is it better to not to use or to use responsibly? Cause the answer to that question, both sides have benefits to the environment potentially um, that come from different, different ways. I think it would be fun to do a skier set that isn't groomed, but I, I personally think like that shine away from grooming is kind of in this instance, maybe not the right answer because I think you're sacrificing the growth and progress of potentially an industry and, and going away from it. So if we all just took, if like, say here in the U S we, we, um, at all the ski areas in the U.S., they decided to only groom once a week, and they were going to put all their groomers away in garages. You know, these these diesel burning fuel, fossil fuel burning uh, groomers. You know, we're only using once a week, but we'll just groom once. I have a feeling that would probably negatively affect the amount of people that are going to come out skiing every day, the amount of people that want to pay for skiing every day, and in the end, will probably not create that kind of demand that creates the kind of innovation that you would have in that industry. That yep. Yep. Um, okay. Last this, I promise is the last question you have seen a lot of skiers come and go, uh, through the years I'm imagining, you know, people who kind of peak young or they're hot for a year or two and then they're gone. Uh, this guy, Claybo, um, I think he's 21 and He's clearly, at least, you know, he's been a, won the Sprint Globe last year. He's been a force this year. What are your, your just your thoughts about watching a guy like that? Um, well, he's impressive, that's for sure. Um, he is, it's funny, one of the things you learn when you 
been in this sport as long as I have been is that there's always going to be young, fast guys. You know, there are, that's something there always will be. <laughs> um, at one point, I was a young, fast guy. At least I like to think of myself as a young, fast guy. Um, when I came onto the World Cup at, you know, 21, 22, I was pretty often in the top three qualifying, would win qualifications sometimes in sprints. Um, it was just, you were just fast and young and fast. You know, you had that that spark, I guess. I don't know. But you had it. Uh, but, I mean, I guess Claybo is unique in that he has that, that youngster speed, but he has that... Um, that incredible fitness as well that he brings to distance racing. He brings to sprinting. So he for sure is a unique beast and it's, um, we've been struggling. I don't want to say struggling, but trying to, we've been trying to find, you know, his Achilles heel, I guess all season. And how can we compete there? How can we beat him? Um, what's the best way to compete against him in a sprint? It's something I think about, um, often. And he has, you know, slightly changed some of the tactics that go into racing sprints, especially in the top brackets when he's, um, when you're in the top bracket of a sprint, which means heats one and two, um, and kind of the pace and the pace and the tactics that are used in racing those kinds of heats when you're racing with a skier like Claybo. Um, so I don't know. I think it's great. He's a he's a nice guy as far as I can tell. Whenever I've chatted with him and, and hung out with him, but you know, time will tell. Like I said, there's always young fast guys. Uh, you know, Northug was a young fast guy at one point, and you know, you can see that Northug has struggled the last two seasons as well. So. It doesn't guarantee your longevity in the sport, but it, it sure makes for some exciting years, and uh, I think he will add some excitement to the Olympics. Cool. Well, Andy, thanks a lot for your time as you you know prep up for your uh, flight to Korea. When do you head over there? Uh, I head over on the 6th of February. Okay. Thanks again for your time, and uh, good luck this weekend. Great. Thank you. All Bye. right. Take care, Andy. Bye. Thanks for listening to Nordic Nation.